Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we examined the rise of Madagascar's first queen, Rana Falona, her rise to power through a military coup, and how a tumultuous first year on the throne led to her adopting a new approach to leading her country. A French invasion of the East Coast, as well as local rebellions erupting all over Imerina's newly integrated provinces, made the queen rethink her husband's approach to industrialization. The Kingdom of Madagascar could not rely on the British allies, no. Imerina was vulnerable, no question about it. If her kingdom was to survive, it would have to become a fortress. Season 4, Episode 19, Western Technology, Malagasy Spirit While the French had been defeated and eastern Madagascar remained a Merina possession, Rana Falona knew that her kingdom was, well, not secure. The Merina army was large and well-equipped, but it was utterly dependent on British trade for arms. The forts in coastal Madagascar were strong, but they acted like sitting ducks against French bombardment. Merina's strategy under Radama had rested on the assumption that an alliance with Britain was enough to keep Imerina secure from outside threats, while the army could focus on uniting the island. 1829 proved that this idea was fallacious. Foreigners would not stand up to protect Imerina in its time of need, so if it was to survive, it must become unconquerable. Rana Faluna's first and primary goal in establishing Fortress Imerina was to develop a domestic military-industrial complex, one which could replace European firms as the primary providers of weaponry to the Merina army. Now, the industrial project within Imerina had progressed at a somewhat steady pace by the time that Rana Falona took power. However, many of the industrial firms established under Radama had already started undergoing severe struggles before the king had even died, and the brief political uncertainty that followed had only made things worse. The sector which struggled the worst were the ventures in cash crop production. The foreign-owned farms on the eastern coast had varied pretty substantially in their success. On the one hand, the coffee and sugar industries were performing decently enough. These crops grew quite well in the east coast tropical climate, while domestic enslaved workers provided a cheap source of labor for use on plantations, which gave planters a price advantage over foreign firms. This growth continued after the announcement of the abolition of slavery in the British Empire in 1833, dramatically disrupting British coffee and sugar plantations throughout their empire, a niche which the Mauritian immigrant to Madagascar, Napoleon de Lastelle, was happy to take advantage of. The success of de Lastelle's plantations spawned imitators, with more large plantations springing up by the 1830s. The silk plantations, established by a group of five Bengali immigrants, were also doing pretty well. Coffee, sugar, and silk seemed to be just about the uh, only things that were doing well, while everything else was failing dramatically. European planters had spent great fortunes in an effort to produce wheat, oat, and other vegetable plantations across eastern Madagascar, only to discover that the soil was too salty to support intensive wheat agriculture, while swarms of locusts pounced at the chance to devour these exposed crops. When some tried to move their practices inland, the problem of salty earth was replaced instead by infrequent but devastating hailstorms, while the locust problem remained as before. Local manufacturers were also a mixed bag of success. While the metalworking industry was thriving, many other industries were flailing, on the one hand, these factories did have several key advantages which should have given them an edge and helped them succeed on the international market. Madagascar possessed endless cheap labor, 
and with the rise of missionary schools, more than enough educated, literate people to serve as foremen. Rather, the main problem arose from overinvestment in manufacturing combined with underinvestment in raw material extraction. The best example of such is the leather firm of a man named John Canham. A member of the London Missionary Society, those same guys operating the missionary schools throughout the country, Canham had opened a leather tanning factory in Antanarifu. He opened up a fancy, high-tech workshop, and hired a force of Malgasi as well as European immigrant laborers to tan and produce hides. The problem, however, was that cowskin was not considered a waste product in Madagascar, the same way that it was in Europe. While European farmers were more than willing to throw away animal skins or sell them to leather tanners at a cheap price, the skin of butchered cattle was viewed as an essential, tasty part of beef in Malgasi cuisine. So when Kanem and his partners began approaching Malgasi farmers and asking if they could buy up their cattle skins, they were confused. I mean, after all, what kind of weirdo would want to eat skinless beef? Instead, Kanem had to come up with a far more ridiculous means of acquiring skins for tanning. Cows were a common export from Madagascar to Mauritius, with the animals being shipped from the hundreds back and forth between the islands. So, Conum contacted a friend of his, who was a merchant in Mauritius, who agreed to send skins from Malagasy cattle butchered in Mauritius back to Madagascar, so that Conum could use them for leather. This did technically work, but it was very obviously inefficient in terms of transport, labor, and middleman costs. Conum's troubles weren't over yet, though. He also struggled to acquire major local sources of lime, an essential ingredient used in leather tanning. At first, Conum simply imported lime from Mauritius, further driving up the cost of his leather tanning. However, he did eventually relent and listen to the advice of some of his Malgasi managers, who told him of an alternative ingredient which could fulfill the same chemical purpose as lime in leather tanning, a type of tree bark from Tuamasina which produced a chemically similar product to lime when ground up thoroughly. The only problem was that, well, it only grew in eastern Madagascar. Which brings us to the next major problem facing the nascent manufacturing sector in Imerina, transportation. In the late 1820s, if you wanted to move bulk shipments of anything, the best way to do this without question was the barge. A single barge on a navigable river could transport enormous quantities of material with relatively little human effort. Unfortunately, there were no navigable rivers leading from Antanarifo out to Tomasina, or, well, any other major port. The only river in the area, the Icopa, was partially man-made through Malgasi canal digging, and was far from navigable at all, much less useful for sizable barges. Rail technology existed at this time, but it was still very much in its infancy. Horses, donkeys, and mules were around in Madagascar and could survive okay in the highlands, but they were a rare commodity and not fit for transportation into eastern Madagascar. Again, they could survive in highland Madagascar relatively okay, but taking draft animals into the tropical lowlands around Tuomasina was almost a guarantee of them contracting a fatal tropical disease. Considering how rare and valuable these animals were in highland Madagascar, Malagasy merchants were not willing to risk these precious commodities just to shave some time off a journey between Antanarifu and Tuomasina. Wheeled transportation, like handcarts and rickshaws, did exist, but without a large population of beasts of burden, they were rare and really only used for personal transit for the upper class. 
Rather, it was human portage, or, you know, simply having people carry things for you, that was the most common means of transportation in Madagascar. Now, you need to keep in mind just how huge Madagascar is here. Tomasina, which in the grand scheme of the island is not that far away from Antanarifu, is still more than 300 kilometers northeast, and not necessarily all of that path had great roads. Walking between the two towns could optimistically take five or six days, and more realistically, when you account for weather conditions, it could last over ten. Transporting goods between the two cities was therefore a long, arduous, and expensive process. This would end up becoming a fatal roadblock for almost any industry that sought to process imported goods. So, by 1830, the vast majority of Malagasy industry was struggling, and badly. Shortages of woven cotton meant that textile mills typically ran at about a quarter of their capacity. Lime and hide shortages made leather an expensive commodity, which further drove up the prices for shoes, apparel, and belts. This meant that most products were far too expensive for common hofa to purchase, with only European craftsmen themselves and the very upper echelons of Merina society able to afford these manufactured goods. Instead of industrially produced goods, most Malgasi people simply continued to buy products the same way they always had, from their local craftsmen. With enslaved workers filling out most of the Merina agricultural sector's labor needs, working-class hofa instead often turned to crafts production to make a living. Local craftsmen would prove to be a killer blow to the Malgasi consumer industrial sector. Now, logically, it makes no sense for an independent craftsman, say a shoemaker, to be able to compete with an industrial-scale capitalist enterprise. The increased startup capital required to procure the means of production, in this case the materials and the factory, as well as the overhead costs to pay floor managers and the capitalists themselves, should be easily offset by the massively increased productivity from mechanization, specialization, and economies of scale. But they didn't. The transportation costs were so large, the overhead costs so high, and the production so low due to material shortages that the prices of industrially produced products became absurdly inflated. Meanwhile, with some elbow grease and local materials, small-scale craftsmen were able to pump out products of comparable quality to the foreknown firms at a fraction of the cost. Basically, the mighty mechanical factories, favored by Radama and powered by water wheels and driven by the labor of hundreds of Fanampuana workers, in many cases were outcompeted by dudes working independently in their own home. As a result, there was little domestic market for the factory-produced goods, and little foreign demand, too. Many of the firms started under Radama's rule had by now devolved into crushing lossmakers, doomed firms propped up entirely by an ever-growing flow of cash directly from the Medina government. Even before she became queen, Rana Faluna had long surmised that unless something changed soon, the struggling foreign firms are going to collapse and take the Merina economy with them. But by 1830, she hatched a new plan. The firms could be saved, and Merina's internal security could be strengthened if the purpose of the firms was reworked. Instead of state money flowing into private consumer industries which failed to make a profit, Rana Faluna figured that it would simply make more sense to transform the ailing firms into enterprises that were directly useful for the state to pay for. In the majority of cases, this meant transitioning from consumer to military products. Within her government, Rana Faluna found plenty of allies in this line of thinking. 
With the deposition and later execution of Rana Faluna's reformist ex-husband Andrei Mihaja, the niche of a dominant faction in the Medina court was quickly filled by a new moderate conservative faction. The most prominent leaders of this moderate faction were a pair of brothers named Raini Haru and Raini Maharu. Unlike the former prime minister, a member of the aristocracy but otherwise largely an upstart military officer, Raini Haru and Raini Maharu were Hofa, but ironically more entrenched in the Medina political hierarchy. They were descendants of a key Sampie guardian and advisor to Andrian Poini Medina and Radama. The two had later served as army officers and used their position to acquire large levies of enslaved workers to become some of the wealthiest landowners in the country. Crucially, they were also some of the first few army officers who were openly opposed to aspects of Radama's westernization policies. Most army officers had either been educated in missionary schools, trained by Europeans, or studied abroad in Europe or Mauritius. Therefore, Raini Haru and Raini Maharu were unusual for their, albeit quite moderate, opposition to the policies of westernization. While the reformers dominated the army, the brothers represented the silent majority of Imerina. As a result, they were able to ride this support into a position of crucial political popularity. Finally, after the deposition of Andrea Mihaja, which they had played a pretty big role in encouraging, mind you, they were able to fill the power vacuum as Rana Falona's top policy advisors. While the brothers opposed certain aspects of westernization, namely the Christianization of the Malgasi and the spread of missionary schools, they were also quite pragmatic in their stance. As experienced soldiers, they had witnessed the undeniably potent effects that Western training and technology had had on the army. Ironically enough, had it not been for some degree of westernization, much of Madagascar would have literally become a European colony. So the brothers settled on an ideology which compromised their suspicion of missionaries with the perceived necessity of certain European technologies and imports. After all, the ideas of Raini Haru in particular both influenced and were influenced by the priorities of Rana Falona. Ultimately, the agenda they settled on is one that might be familiar to scholars of industrialization. If you're familiar at all with Japan's famous process of industrialization, which would happen a few decades later, you might recognize the well-known slogan by Sakuma Shozan, Japanese Spirit, Western Technique. Well, Raini Haru approached the earlier attempt at westernization in Madagascar with a similar mindset. Western technology, Malagasy spirit. As part of this new approach to industrialization, Raini Haru and Rana Falona sought to transition the failing foreign-run firms in Imerina away from foreign consumer goods and towards products for the military. The man who would become the chief engineer for this project of transition was a Scottish missionary named James Cameron. Cameron, not to be confused with the film director who gave us Blue People Dancing with Wolves and some movie about a boat, was one of the many missionaries associated with the London Missionary Society to move to Madagascar. Radama had also required missionaries moving into Madagascar to have some sort of artisanal skill, and in Cameron's case, it was carpentry. Upon moving to Madagascar, he remained at first a relatively minor figure among the island's LMS teaching European brick masonry and carpentry techniques to Malgasy vocational students. In 1826, though, Cameron earned his first big project. He was tasked with building a major textile factory in Antanarifu. Like the majority of global factories at the time, the factory's machines were planned to be powered by a water wheel. 
but since the many canals of Antanarifu were small channels designed for irrigation, Cameron was tasked with enlarging a system of pre-existing canals to connect a large swamp in central Antanarifu with the Ikopa River. Once completed, the swamp flooded, forming a sizable heart-shaped lake with an island in the middle, connected by an earthen causeway, which would soon house the planned hydraulic textile mill. However, the project was never completed. While Cameron had done a good enough job with the canals, he had no idea how to engineer an actual textile mill, and the man who was supposed to complete this part of the project unfortunately died right before he could begin. Then, in 1828, Radama died, and the project went into limbo. In the first days of Rana Faluna's rule, work actually almost began again in 1829 until, uh-oh, the French invaded. By the time that was done and progress could resume, Rana Faluna approached Cameron with an alternative idea. Rather than textiles, she ordered him to begin work on a wholly different project, a gunpowder factory. Now, Cameron was actually the perfect guy for the Empress to approach. Until 1828, most missionary artisans had scoffed at the idea of the Malgasy manufacturing gunpowder locally. One of the key ingredients in gunpowder was sulfur, a chemical which didn't exist anywhere on the island in a usable scale. Many of the products used in European gunpowder manufacturing, like glass and certain acidic compounds, were also quite rare on the island. But unlike other missionaries, Cameron was willing to experiment extensively with alternative manufacturing processes. In 1828, with heavy assistance from his Malagasy students, he had successfully tested a gunpowder manufacturing method which relied exclusively on locally available materials. In 1830, Rana Faluna provided the resources and labor for Cameron to begin work on a gunpowder factory to produce this unique Malagasy material-based gunpowder, which was completed in 1831 and fully operational three years later. In the meantime, Cameron shifted his efforts towards another chemical industry, soap. While most foreign-produced products had been manufactured primarily for Western consumer markets, soap was one of the few foreign products which was consistently a highly desired and profitable product both domestically and in foreign markets. In 1832, Cameron opened the first major soap factory in Madagascar, which quickly ascended to become one of the most successful foreign firms on the island. Soap was compact and relatively light, and therefore very easy to transport. Foreign recipes could also be easily tweaked to use available Malagasy resources, as well as to fit Malagasy market tastes, which often differed from those in Europe. While Cameron shifted to soap, Rana Faluna shifted her own focus towards militarizing other civilian industries. Conum's leather factory was ordered to refocus the entirety of its operations to military accessories, such as army headgear and boots. In exchange, Rana Faluna assisted Conum's firm with bountiful supplies of cowskins. In a new government edict she ordered in 1833, Rana Faluna announced that all skin from dead cattle was deemed state property, which must not be eaten and instead handed over to Conum for tanning. The London Missionary Society's dominance over the Malagasy industrial market was soon challenged by the arrival of another key figure, and it happened entirely by accident. In 1831, a French ship had gotten caught up in a storm and shipwrecked on a Malagasy reef near Madagascar's east coast. When the wreck's sole survivor climbed onto the shore, he found himself in the plantation of Napoleon de Lestelle. The survivor was a 26-year-old brassmith named Jean Laborde. Laborde is, well, an interesting guy. He grew up in a family of middling blacksmiths in southern France, and seeking to find new opportunities, moved across the sea as a young man. 
Laborde spent some time in southern India, where he became a pretty well-known smith. His crowning achievement was that, at one point, a local maharaja hired Laborde to supply an entire orchestra of trumpets and other instruments for his royal entourage. This transaction made Laborde a pretty good amount of money. But one day, Laborde had a terrible idea. Like all terrible ideas, it started when he was approached by a charismatic man at a bar. The man claimed to be a down-on-his-luck sailor who was on the brink of hitting a financial gold mine. The man in the bar claimed to know about the locations of several lost treasure ships that had sunk off the coast of Madagascar, and that if Laborde could just only buy him a new ship and crew, he could guide him to the lost riches. Laborde bought into the idea and sold his home and life savings to buy the man a ship. Whether or not that man in the bar was telling the truth would ultimately not matter as the ship with Laborde on it promptly crashed into a reef, and here we are. Broke, stranded, and completely alone, Laborde was very lucky to run into Lestelle. The planter had recently encountered a problem of his own. Queen Ranafalona, to supplement her growing arms industry, wanted to build a cannon factory in Imerina. After all, Malagasy forts were helpless against French bombardment in 1829, and cannons would give them the crucial ability to return fire at their attackers. Ranafalona, therefore, wanted Lestel to use his funds for just such a project. The only problem was that, well, Lestel didn't know a single thing about cannons, metalworking, or anything else relevant to making cannons. So imagine his luck when an experienced brasssmith just happened to wash up on a beach near his plantation. Lestel told Laborde about how, if he could impress the queen, then the potential rewards for doing so would be outstanding. He would know, after all. In order to make the most of his opportunity, Laborde spent the next two years strenuously studying the Malagasy language and immersing himself in the local culture. When the time for his meeting with Rana Falona came in 1833, the queen was quite impressed. Now, think about this from Rana Falona's perspective. She was ecstatic to finally have a European artisan in her court that wasn't a missionary. The missionaries were doing their job, sure, but they were always talking about Jesus this, Christianity that. In one infamous encounter with Cameron the year prior, she had called him into a meeting to discuss soap manufacturing, only for him to go on and on about missionary schools and how many people he was converting. Rana Falona eventually snapped and shouted at the missionary that she was just here to talk about soap, goddammit! With Laborde, he was no missionary, but just a regular dude. Ranafalona and Laborde were on the same page. Industrialization was the end here, not simply a means to save souls. As a result, the two hit it off instantly, and soon began to draw up a contract for Laborde to build the artillery plant. At first, the plan called for a simple firearm and cannon factory in Ilafie, just a few miles outside Antanarifu, to be built by 3,000 enslaved Besanusano captives, and worked by a few dozen Fanampuano workers. This small experimental factory proved abnormally successful, largely due to Laborde's own willingness to adapt to local conditions. For example, when Laborde faced a shortage of high-quality lead ore, he instead substituted it for lower-quality local ore, smelted in more intense heat to compensate. Amazingly, with just a minimal workforce of under 50 people, the factory was able to pump out an entire cannon every single day. While successful, though, Laborde struggled to properly expand his operation. Due to Ilapie's location at the top of a hill, it was difficult to bring sufficient water for machine powering and cooling. So, when Laborde renewed his contract with the Queen, 
he pitched to her a new project, the most ambitious industrial project Madagascar had ever seen, even exceeding the burning land of Amoronque. Rana Falona greenlit Laborde's plan. Laborde's new facility would require a far greater workforce than his tiny Alafia factory. 20,000 enslaved workers were assigned to build the facility, while 5,000 Fanampuana were placed on reserve to begin work in the facility once completed. The foundations were laid, and soon, the tiny village of Mantasua, located perfectly at the coalescence of five nearby lakes, was set to be transformed into the central hub of Malgasy manufacturing. Now, keep in mind that Laborde had, just a few years ago, been an ordinary blacksmith in India, totally unqualified to lead any such operation of this magnitude. It shouldn't surprise you to learn then that the whole time he was working on the Mantasoa factory, he was essentially just copying down ideas he found in an industrial manual he bought from a passing ship. Basically, he was doing his era's version of reading the wiki how on building a major multi-purpose industrial complex. As a result, the project would take its time to get anywhere. Hills had to be flattened, buildings constructed, streams redirected to transform five lakes into one enormous lake, and, in the most impressive feat of engineering, a major aqueduct was built which transported water directly from the lakes to the middle of the Matasoa factory. The complex took ultimately seven years to finish, but the product was worth it. Water wheels powered the largest factories in town which mass-produced cannons, firearms, swords, bayonets, and ammunition in the hundreds, while smaller peripheral factories focused on everything from lime to silk, soap, and glass. Other nearby facilities processed sugar, coffee, and other agricultural products into finished versions ready for consumption on international markets. Water from the aqueduct also powered hydraulic weaving machines, but most importantly, it powered the blast furnaces. At its height, the Mantasoa Industrial Complex possessed five large blast furnaces. Compared to the smaller hand-bellowed furnaces at Amaronque, the blast furnaces at Mantasoa used large mechanical bellows powered by water wheels, allowing them to maintain significantly higher temperatures for much more efficient production of steel. Furthermore, the novel industrial center became a major hub of the early Malgasy tourist industry. The factory required frequent supervision from elite Malgasy bureaucrats, who often traveled between Mantasoa and their homes in Antanarifu. Locals quickly spotted an opportunity in these frequent travelers, opening up small markets and even hotels to cater to traveling bureaucrats. The industrial city became a personal favorite of Rana Falona herself. She frequently traveled to the city, so much that she ordered the construction of a second royal palace at its site. In addition to a luxurious vacation home, the palace at Mantasoa also featured a private zoo, inhabited by exotic animals like lions and gazelles imported from the African mainland, as well as a private swimming pool which underwent regular water changes. The queen stayed many long nights in her private retreat in the town, with her reportedly enjoying the ambient sounds of the factory machines running as she fell asleep. Rana Falona equally became quite fond of the town's engineer. While Rana Falona is often depicted as xenophobic and distrustful of foreigners for reasons that we'll discuss in the future, it's hard to overstate just how much the Empress grew to like Laborde personally. He was renowned for being a very charismatic individual, quickly adapting his working knowledge of the Malgasy language into full fluency and becoming a charming conversationalist. He so charmed the Malgasy court that he was granted honorary status into the highest rank of Andriana. 
He also brought with him exotic customs which delighted members of the court. Laborde was in tune with the latest dance, music, and fashion trends of his home region, including the emerging genre of polka. The Frenchman's exotic Occidental dances were apparently an object of great amusement among Rathalona's court. Among the Malgasi, he was not known by his French name Jean, but rather by a newly adopted nickname, Ramose. The name is a bilingual compound, with Ra being a common prefix attached to a Malgasi name, while Mosse derives from the French Monsieur Laborde, the way Laborde introduced himself to strangers. Close friends, however, gave him a more personal nickname, with Rana Falona and her sons referring to Laborde as Niedada, a Malgasi term of endearment reserved for fathers, kind of like Pops or My Old Man. This nickname was fitting. The queen's son had been fathered by André Mihaja, her first ill-fated prime minister. As a result, the boy grew up without a father. Laborde would end up filling an important niche, eventually becoming the boy's private tutor and his primary father figure. Keep this in the back of your mind, as it will have important consequences in a few episodes. Under the capable team formed by Rana Falona and Laborde, the industrialization of Imerina progressed unusually quickly. By the 1840s, Madagascar's flailing consumer firms had been replaced with a thriving military-industrial complex. Among the existing consumer firms, the strongest had persisted. The industrial economy even seemed to be finally feeding into itself. The abundance of steel from Mantasoa encouraged De La Stelle, you know, the guy whose plantation Laborde had washed up on, to diversify his own interests on the island. In 1845, he hired a group of local smiths to found an industrial tool production firm, which sold pickaxes, mattocks, shovels, saws, and other common construction and farming equipment. Lime from Mantasoa ended up in Conum's leather factories. Rana Falona's economic policies were, in a sense, working tremendously well. Following Laborde's arrival, his fellow foreign artisans had also seemingly become more adaptable, more willing to make the best use of domestic Malagasy resources rather than importing expensive material from abroad. Most of the new products coming out of these industries were, of course, intended for military consumption. As you might expect, the Merina army grew considerably during this time, almost doubling in its standing peacetime capacity. Now, at any given moment, a standing army of 40,000 professional Merina soldiers were ready for battle, with up to 100,000 men ready to be conscripted at a moment's notice. Rana Falona did not let this army go to waste, and instead continued her husband's agenda of expansionist warfare. From 1830 until 1835, Rana Falona went to war, deploying her army until all of the rebellious territories were once again brought to their knees. She then turned her attention to the long-standing rivals of the Medina. Medina armies soon conquered Boigny, subjugating the last remnants of the once great northern Sakalava Empire. Menabe followed in 1846, with the vast majority of its territory getting enveloped into the ever-expanding Medina fold, holding on to only a tiny fraction of their original territories, in the far end of their northern frontier. Meanwhile, using the mere threat of invasion, the Antemoro people of the far south were brought under informal vassal status, based on a decades-old oath of allegiance way back in the rule of Andrian Ampoini Merina. With the vassalization of the Antemoro secure, Rana Falona had brought almost all of Madagascar under her control. The only remaining pieces of the modern country not controlled by the Mpanjaki Merina were the southwest, controlled by the independent kingdom of the Mahafali people, a small rump state in the former northern frontiers of Menabe, 
and a few offshore islands controlled by France. In terms of raw political and economic power, you could make a strong argument that Rana Falona's rule, and not Radama's, was the high point of Merina civilization. The Kingdom of Madagascar was rapidly developing into a true power that warranted respect from domestic and international observers alike. Rana Falona had done anything and everything necessary to warrant this respect. She had beaten a major European power in a war. She had transformed her kingdom from a backwards, agrarian society into a true industrial power. She had defeated all of her people's ancient enemies and brought them to their knees. Surely, this is a woman who will go down in history as an all-time great leader, not only the greatest leader Imerina has ever seen, but perhaps earning a spot on the shortlist of greatest political leaders of the early modern era. But not really. We know from our opening spiel of our last episode on Anna Falona that she is far from famous, but rather a notorious figure. And while it's tempting to claim that Rana Falona is unfairly maligned, a figure that is awarded too little credit and demerited with excessive criticism, the Queen's infamous persona is indisputably rooted in some basis of reality. While viewing aspects of her reign in isolation may give the impression of a golden age, reality couldn't be further from the case. The glittering heights of progress and stability are, in fact, supported by a foundation of absurd cruelty and vicious exploitation. The contradictions of Rana Falona's Madagascar cannot be buried forever. Join us in our next episode, as we pull the rug out from the legacy of this Malagasy queen and explore the atrocities and abuse that Rana Falona's reign rested upon. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like our show, then we would greatly appreciate if you could help support the show and our project of freely available online history education. You can do this by supporting us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, or by sharing the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy learning about African history. This episode is brought to you by supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayofagba Mie, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sebelabier, Evan Edwards, Pascal Makocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwawadike, Sheyuno Loronti Main, Kwajua Mankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, Samuel Badu, Rassan Firgiani, Niti, Kitty, and Tariq Beetleman, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really, really means a lot.